Hello everyone, my name is Rhys Karlinski and this is Young History, episode 148 on Yemen. The capital of Yemen is Sana'a, and we're going to get into the name of Yemen super, super quick, but it is a little complicated, so bear with me as we go through this. The name Yemen derives from the word Yemint or Al-Yaman, which both mean the south, and specifically it is named this for being south of the Arabian Peninsula, because it's Arabic, spoken in Arabia, so... All of that, it's literally just south of there. So that makes perfect sense with the name. And then to get into some cool facts, Yemen is considered one of the possible origins of coffee. The Arabic coffee plant is believed to have originated in the region of Yemen, and the country has a long tradition of coffee cultivation. Yemeni coffee, known for its unique flavor, is highly prized across the world. The city of Shibam in Yemen is often referred to as the Manhattan of the desert. It is famous for its mud brick high-rise buildings, some of which date back to the 1700s or earlier. And Shabam is one of the oldest and best examples of vertical urban planning. Yemen boasts diverse landscapes from mountains to deserts. The Haraz Mountains, Skotra Archipelago, and the Empty Quarter, which is one of the largest sand deserts in the world, all contribute to the diversity in Yemen's stunning natural beauty. And here are some cultural facts as well. A kwat, or kat, is a widely consumed stimulant in Yemen. It's a green leaf that people chew and is used as a big part of social gatherings. Kat chewing sessions are a common activity for people to do as they grow into young adults. Yemeni cuisine is flavorful and diverse. Dishes like mandi, which is rice with meat, salta, a traditional stew, and fowl, which is a bean-based dish, are popular. And the earlier mentioned Yemen coffee, known as kwaha, is an integral part of social gatherings. Yemeni women are known for their intricate silver jewelry, often passed down through generations. These adornments, including necklaces, bracelets, and rings, are significant symbols of cultural identity and social status. Yemen has a rich tradition of Islamic calligraphy. The intricate art of the Quranic calligraphy is often depicted in mosques, madrasas, and traditional Islamic manuscripts. These can be traced back through these historical manuscripts to centuries and centuries ago. Yemen has a strong tradition of storytelling. Folk tales, often featuring characters like Ananse the Spider, are passed down through generations. They convey moral lessons and cultural values that the Yemeni people accept. And finally, henna is commonly used for body art in Yemen. Its intricate design allows for people to use henna to paint pictures during special occasions, such as weddings, festivals, and other culturally significant events. And that's a whole lot of cultural stuff for you guys to grasp. There's a lot of facts there. But it's a bunch of stuff I wanted to give to Yemen because I'm not going to lie to you. The, the history about it too gets pretty nasty very, very quickly. So I wanted to give us some time to highlight, you know, things about the Yemeni people, Yemeni culture, Yemen itself. That isn't just the conflicts and all that that are going on there now. And the different things that have happened throughout history. But with all that being said, that does get us to the beginning. So I'm going to stop yip-yapping and get right to the start. So... One more time, just wanted to say thank you guys so much for being here. And my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History. This is Yemen. Hope you guys enjoy. Our origins begin maybe 5,000 years ago. With its long sea border between early civilizations, Yemen has long existed at a crossroads of cultures with a strategic location in terms of both trade and settlement in the Arabian Peninsula. Large settlements for their time existed in the mountains of the northern Yemen areas in this 5,000 BC area. Little is known about ancient Yemen and how exactly it transitioned from the Bronze Age 
to the trade focus Caravan Kingdoms is still up in the air, but we do know that this happened and we eventually get Caravan Kingdoms and different trade routes that go through Yemen as Yemen becomes a place where there's a lot of ports and different goods flowing in and out of. One of the most significant things that comes up is the development of the Sabian Kingdom. The Sabian Kingdom, also known as the Kingdom of Saba or Sheba, was an ancient civilization that existed in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, primarily in Yemen. The Sabian Kingdom is renowned for its wealth, advanced agricultural practice, and participation in lucrative trade of aromatic spices, particularly frankincense and myrrh. The Sabean Kingdom is believed to have emerged around the 700s BC in the region of present-day Yemen. The city of Marib served as the capital of the kingdom. The early Sabeans were skilled in agriculture, and they constructed a sophisticated irrigation system, including the famous Marib Dam, to support all of their agricultural activities. The Sabean Kingdom's wealth was derived from its control over the trade routes that connected the Arabian Peninsula to the Mediterranean and other regions. Because of this location, the Sabaeans were major trade players for their entire time in power. The Sabaean kingdom is often associated with the legendary Queen of Sheba, who is mentioned in various religious texts, including the Bible and the Quran. According to the Bible, the Queen of Sheba visited King Solomon to test his wisdom and brought him gifts, including precious spices such as frankincense and myrrh. The Quran also references this story. Now, eventually, the Sabaean kingdom faced a decline mainly attributed to the internal conflicts and eventual failure of the Marib Dam. The dam's collapse is thought to have led to a decline in agriculture and contributed to the economic downturn because they were unable to have workers because nobody was fed. Now, the next major people group and unit we get is the Himyarite Kingdom. The Himyarite Kingdom, also known as the Kingdom of Himyar, was an ancient kingdom that existed in the southern part of Yemen. The Himyarites played a significant role in the region's history and were known for their political influence over the land. The Himyarite Kingdom is believed to have emerged in the second century BCE. The Himyarites were influenced by various The Himyarite Kingdom is believed to have emerged in the 200s BC, in the wake of the decline of the Sabean Kingdom. The city of Zafar became the capital of this kingdom. The early Himyarites were influenced by Sabean culture, but gradually developed their own identity. The Himyarites accepted local religious traditions, including indigenous Arabic beliefs and influences from the neighboring civilizations. They adopted Judaism during certain periods, and later, Christianity also found a foothold in the region. Similar to the Sabean Kingdom, the Himyarites were involved in lucrative trade, particularly the commerce of aromatic spices such as frankincense and myrrh. The strategic location of the kingdom along these trade routes contributed to its economic prosperity. The kingdom had historical conflicts with the kingdom of Aksum, which is in present-day Ethiopia. The Abyssinians and Himyarites engaged in intermittent wars, often motivated by different political, religious, and economic clashes. In the 6th century CE, the Himyarite kingdom faced internal conflicts and external pressures, including more in intense invasions from the Abyssinians from Aksum. The Abyssinians captured the capital of Zavar in 525 CE, marking the end of the Himyarite kingdom's political independence in the region. And as these different kingdoms fell, the Islamic period began. Yemen was one of the first places not in Muhammad's cities to accept Islam. Several Yemeni leaders and tribes embraced Islam early on, even during the times that Muhammad was alive. The port city of Aden, strategically located on the southern part near many trade routes, led to a lot of the interactions with Arabians that were spreading Islam. After the Prophet Muhammad died in 632 CE, the Rashidun Caliphs initiated the Islamic conquest to spread Islam. Yemen came under the Caliphate and different caliphs played roles in consolidated Islamic rule in the region. The Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates that followed continued to influence Yemen. 
Yemen became an important center for Islamic scholarship and learning. Cities like Sana'a and Zabid were known for their vibrant intellectual and cultural activities. Yemen produced renowned scholars, and it became a hub for the study of Islamic sciences, including hadith, jurisprudence, and theology. The region witnessed periods of both Sunni and Shia influence, with different rulers and dynasties promoting each branch of Islam. The Zaydiyya school of thought, which is a branch of Shia Islam, found prominence in Yemen, and Zaydi imams played significant roles in the governance of the region. Yemen experienced periods of political fragmentation, with various local rulers and dynasties controlling different parts of the region. The Sulahid dynasty, for example, ruled over parts of Yemen during the 900s and first thousand years of the new millennia. In the 1100s, the Ayyubid dynasty, led by Salah ad-Din Saladin, influenced parts of Yemen. Later, the Rashidid dynasty emerged in the 1200s, and it played a role in fostering economic and cultural development. The Ottoman Empire, under the leadership of Suleiman the Magnificent, their greatest sultan in my opinion, began its expansion into the Arabian Peninsula in the early 1500s. In 1538, the Ottomans captured the strategic port city of Aden and began to influence wider Yemen. Yemen was incorporated into the Ottoman administrative system. Ottoman governors, known as Beylebeis, were appointed to oversee the region. The Ottoman province that included Yemen was part of the larger Habesh Eyalet. Yemen held economic importance to the Ottomans due to its location on this major maritime trade route. The region was known for its trade of valuable commodities such as spices, incense, and precious woods. Ottoman rule in Yemen was met with resistance from various local tribes and communities. Yemen's rugged terrain and the independence of tribal structures made it challenging for the Ottomans to establish full control. Numerous uprisings and conflicts occurred throughout the Ottoman period. One of the significant uprisings during the Ottoman rule in Yemen was the Zaydi Revolt in the 1600s. The Zaydis, which were followers of that earlier Zaydiya branch of Shia Islam, rebelled against the Ottoman authority in the north. Imam al-Mutawakil led, led the Zaydis in their fight against the Ottomans. In the mid-1800s, Yemen experienced the Qat Rebellion, named for the Qat plant that played a central role in Yemeni society, which we mentioned in the opening. The rebellion reflected social and economic grievances against Ottoman rule. Both of these were very unsuccessful. The Ottomans suppressed them quickly and actually started to take Yemeni boys away from their families so that they could be trained to be janissaries and other soldiers in the Ottoman army. While the Ottomans controlled parts of Yemen, the British established their presence in the southern port city of Aden in the 1800s. Aden became a crucial British naval and commercial base, leading to interactions and sometimes clashes between the Ottomans and the British. As the 1800s rolled on, Aden became a vital strategic location due to its natural harbor. It was recognized by all sides as a major maritime trading port, and in 1939, the British East India Company actually secured coaling stations for its steamships. Aden developed into a major trading port and coaling station for the British. The British continued to invest in infrastructure of the city, which included the construction of a railway to facilitate transport of goods across the peninsula. Aden's economy continued to grow, which attracted immigrants and contributed to its cosmopolitan character that had a mix of peoples and wealth. In World War I, the Turco-British rivalry in the Arabian Peninsula intensified during World War I. The Ottomans aligned with the Central Powers, which were in conflict with the British. The British sought to control key territories and protect the sea routes that it held. The Arab Revolt, initiated by Sharif Hussein of Mecca in 1916, aimed at giving Arab independence from Ottoman rule. The revolt, with the support of the British, contributed to the weakening of Ottoman control over parts of the Arabian Peninsula. Yemen's tribal structure played a role in these events of World War I. Different tribes had varied loyalties, and the complex tribal dynamics influenced the course of events throughout the war. 
But with the end of World War I in 1918, the Ottoman Empire disintegrated. In Yemen, the period marked a time of transition, with shifting power dynamics and increased local aspirations for independence. In 1918, the northern part of Yemen became independent, as the Ottoman force dissolved. Yahya Mahmud al-Mutawakil, the Imam of the Zaydis, became the de facto monarch of the north because he played a major role in the resistance against the Ottomans. At this same point, the British were in control of South Yemen, which they administered through an Imam in their region. And of course, their main city was Aden. In an effort to enhance the effectiveness of the Imam's campaigns against tribes and other fractitious elements, the Imam sent a group of Yemeni youth to Iraq in the mid-1930s to learn modern military techniques and weaponry operation. Yemeni independence allowed the Imam to resuscitate Zaydi claims to historic Yemen, which included Aden and the Protectorate States, as well as an area farther north that had been occupied only recently by the expansion of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. This included the province of Asir and some important areas around the Najran Oasis and Jizyan, all throughout the central and northern parts of the country. In the 1920s, Imam Yaha sought to consolidate his hold on the country by working to bring Shafi areas under his administrative jurisdiction and by suppressing much of the intertribal feuding and tribal opposition to the expanding Imamate. And over the next two decades, there would be a lot of friction between both the Imamate and the British and the Imamate and its people. So, in 1948, Yahya was overthrown in the north because of his strict rule, and he was ousted via a people's coup. However, Yahya's son, Ahmad, succeeded in bringing together many of the tribal elements of the north. He overthrew the new government and installed himself as Imam once again. Although Imam Amir Abin Yaha had indicated that he supported many of the popular political, economic, and social demands of the people, his own government soon resembled his father's in nearly all ways. So in no time, he faced the same levels of resistance that his father did. In 1955, there was an assassination attempt against him. Ahmed survived and began to crack down on his region with brutal iron fist suppression. In the meantime, the policies of both imams had backfired in the south, although they had advantage of offering an indigenous Muslim regime as an alternative to secular British rule, the imams' aggressive policies had alarmed many of the ruling families of the statelets in the south. The latter now believed, probably correctly, that if their small statelets were to be taken over by the imam, their status would be curtailed if not quickly eliminated. Consequently, most deemed it advantageous to cooperate more closely with Britain, which after all, subsidized them and implied a role for them to actually have power in their region. By the late 1950s, an earlier proposal to federate some of these smaller statelets had grown into a much broader scheme to include principalities, sheikdoms, and more into a political entity that would eventually achieve independence from the British. The British were adamant that Aden is not incorporated into any system they did not approve of. Thus, moves by the British made it very hard for any peace talks to occur. The business owners and white-collar class of Aden also feared they would lose profits and future security as part of this new Yemeni geopolitical unit. The British continued to insist upon the chosen course of action, and by 1965, all but four of the 21 protectorate states had joined the Federation of South Arabia. Shortly thereafter, Britain announced that it would leave Southern Arabia and that independence would ensue no later than 1968. This announcement unleashed the violent political conflict that prevailed in Aden, and the protectorates for the next two years fought for control of the destiny of South Yemen. In the north, meanwhile, Ahmed died of natural causes in September of 1962, and his son, Muhammad al-Badir, became the imam. Within a week, elements of the military, supported by a wide variety of political organizations, staged a coup and declared the foundation of the Yemen Arab Republic in North Yemen. 
The young imam escaped from his destroyed palace, fled into the northern highlands, and began the traditional process of rallying the tribes to his cause. The new republic called upon Egypt for assistance, and the Egyptian troops and equipment arrived almost immediately to defend the new regime of Abdallah al-Salah, who was the nominal leader of the 1962 revolution and the first president of North Yemen. Nearly as quickly, Saudi Arabia provided aid and sanctuary to the imam and his largely tribal royalist force. The establishment of a republic in North Yemen provided a tremendous incentive to the elements in the south that sought to eliminate the British presence there. Furthermore, the Egyptians agreed to provide support for some of the organizations campaigning for southern independence. Some of these were the Front of the Liberation of Occupied South Yemen, the FLOSY. However, not all elements in either of the two Yemens were sympathetic to Egyptian policies, much less to the dominant role that Egypt wanted to play in Southern Arabia. A new radical alternative movement had formed. This was the National Liberation Front. The NLF drew its support primarily from indigenous elements in the South. As the time for independence drew near, the conflict between the various groups, and especially between the NLF, and the FLOSY escalated into an open warfare for the right to govern after the British fully withdrew. By late 1967, the NLF clearly had the upper hand. The British finally accepted the inevitable and arranged the transfer of sovereignty to the NLF on November 3rd, 1967. The new government in Aden renamed the country the People's Republic of South Yemen. Short of resources and unable to obtain any significant amounts of aid, either from the Western states or those in the Arab world, it began to drift towards the Soviet Union. The Union eagerly provided economic and technical assistance in hopes of bringing an Arab state into the Soviet political sphere. By the early 1970s, South Yemen had become an expanded Marxist state and had inaugurated a radical restructuring of the economy and society along communist lines, renaming itself the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. In North Yemen, the conflict between the Imam's royalist forces and the Republicans had escalated into a full-blown civil war that continued until 1970. Participation, however, was not limited to the Yemenis. Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Jordan supported the royalists, whereas Egypt and the Soviet Union and other Eastern Bloc states supported the Republicans. Britain and the United States, as well as the UN, eventually became major players in the war, even if it was only to diplomatically act on behalf of their side. By the late 1960s, however, the Yemenis decided that the only logical outcome of the conflict was a compromise. The compromise would have as its most important side effect the departure of the various foreign forces. Al-Salah's pro-Egyptian regime was ousted in a bloodless coup in 1968 and replaced by a nominally civilian one headed by President Abdal Rahman al-Iryani. Two years later, with the blessing of the two major foreign participants, Egypt and Saudi Arabia, the leaders of North Yemen agreed upon the Compromise of 1970. This compromise established a republican government in which some major positions were assigned to members of the royalist faction. It was agreed that the imam and his family were not to return to Yemen or to play any role whatsoever in the new state. According to this compromise, the imam went into exile in Britain and died there in the late 1990s. The compromise led to the erosion of the role of the tribal aristocracy. However, the growing impact of Saudi hegemony in the country stirred a backlash in the decades ahead most notably in the form of the revivalist movement of the Zaydis. The compromised government embarked haltingly upon a program of political and economic development. With few resources and even fewer skilled persons to implement the desired changes, the military and some tribal elements impatiently dismissed the civilian cabinet in 1974 and replaced it with a military-led command council, headed by Ibrahim al-Hamdi. He appointed a cabinet largely composed of technocrats, which are 
people that want to use the advancement of technology and military to expand their own kind of democracy. The government slowly but surely began to build a set of more modern institutions and moved to implement the beginnings of a new program of development. The local and national level were to be affected by this as time rolled on. Not all sectors of the population, however, accepted the government's new powers and influence over the traditional political, economic, and social relationships that were being made by the government. A clear indication of the discontent was the assassination of two presidents in rapid succession, Al-Hamdi in 1977, and only eight months later, his replacement, Ahmad al-Jashimi, was also killed in 1978. The People's Constituent Assembly, which had been created somewhat earlier, selected Colonel Ali Abdullah Saleh as the successor. Despite early public skepticism and a serious coup attempt in the late 1978, Saleh managed to consolidate most factions under his rule, and in hopes to improve relations with Yemen's neighbors, he resumed various programs of economic and political development and institutionalization internationally. More firmly in power in the 1980s, Saleh created the political organization that was to become known as his party, the General People's Congress, or GPC. He steered Yemen into the age of oil and would maintain the oil wealth in Yemen as best he could. Now that the two Yemens were independent, expectations rose in some quarters that there would be some sort of unification, especially since both states publicly claimed to support the idea. But this was not coming quickly. The primary reason being that drastic divergence of political and and socio-economic orientations of the two regimes caused divisions. The North elected to remain a mixed but largely market economy and to retain ties with the West as well as with Saudi Arabia. And the South began to move rapidly in a socialist direction under the leadership of the more radical wing of the NLF. Political differences led to a brief border war between the two Yemens in 1972. Efforts by some Yemeni and by others to resolve these disputes did push towards agreements that may have led to unification. And despite this, the conflicts between the two did seem irreconcilable. The South Yemenis perceived their cause, that of Marxist transformation of the Arab political, economic, and social systems, to be in direct need of adoption for the sake of everyone. And it was actually South Yemen that helped to instigate and fund a broad-based opposition movement in the North. The National Democratic Front in the mid-70s sanctioned the assassination of the North Yemeni president, al-Jashimi, and in 1978, at the same time, South Yemen supported other revolutionary organizations in the region, such as the Popular Front for the Liberation of Oman. The continuing friction between the two Yemens led to another brief but more serious border war in 1979, as in the previous case, that conflict was followed by a short-lived agreement to unify. In South Yemen, significant fissures, both ideological and practical, were ongoing in Yemen. The party that evolved out of the NLF was the Yemen Socialist Party. Abdel Fattah Isma was the major ideologue of the YSP, which was the Yemen Socialist Party. He was the head of state and the driving force behind South Yemen's movement towards the Soviet Union earlier in the 1970s. Late in that decade, he was opposed by his former ally, leader of the Chinese faction in the regime. South Yemen President Salam al-Rubai, whose visit to China inspired his politics with Maoist ideas, was that opponent. The conflict ended in Rubai's execution on charges that he had been behind the assassination of the former president, al-Jashimi. In turn, Ismail provided diplomatic and rigid analysis of his policies and implemented them heavily in the 1980s to change the country. His successor, Ali Nassar Muhammad, instituted a far less dogmatic political and economic order in January of 1986. The various personnel and ideological differences that surfaced in the country started a brief episode of violent civil strife that left Ismail and many of his supporters dead. It resulted in the exile of Ali Nassir Muhammad and brought to power a group of moderate politicians and technocrats led by Ali Salim al-Baid 
and Haider Abu Bakr al-Attas. It was this element of the Yemen Socialist Party that undertook the negotiations that brought about the unity of the two Yemens. The ability of the new leadership to build popular political support and revive the faltering development of South Yemen was tested throughout the late 1980s. By 1988, the split between South Yemen with its capital at Aden and North Yemen at its capital in Sana'a was extremely prominent, and it would be over the next few years that changes started to occur. Negotiations happened throughout 1988 and 1989, and after conflicts back and forth and a lot of negotiations, it became clear that a merger between the two nations was all that was left to achieve. The two independent countries of North Yemen and South Yemen agreed to the terms that would unite them into one country in 1990. Some people saw this as the ultimate achievement, but others viewed it as a loss of individualism. Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was the president of North Yemen for the 11 years before this, ended up becoming president of the entire unified Yemen. The capital was moved to Sana'a. The nation was 65% Sunni and 30% Shia. The former president of South Yemen actually became the vice president of the United Yemen. And as soon as unification happened, a lot of instability followed. The Gulf War saw Yemen stand against Western intervention, and this caused the country, which was already very poor, to face heavy sanctions. In 1993, the South Yemenis felt the unity was not what they wanted because of widespread economic struggles that weren't going away. South Yemen also wanted to distance themselves from North Yemen because there was a significant tension building between Saudi Arabia and the North. So the vice president of Yemen led a successionist movement in the South. In 1994, the North capitulated and invaded the South. Thus began the Yemen Civil War. The Yemen Civil War was fought from May to July of 1994. Shia Muslims in the north were motivated to delve into their faith by the Houthi family. The Houthi family united northern people behind the sentiment against President Ali Abdullah Salah. The Houthi are and were an anti-U.S., anti-Semitic, and anti-Zionist group of Zaydi Shia Muslims. They hail mostly in the mountains where Zaydi practice was most common, and they employed soldiers to fight for this triple cause across North Yemen. In order to contextualize the Houthi and what they stand for, I'm going to give a little more historical backdrop. So, the Zaid people, the Zaidi people, have lived in the mountain region since as far back as 897. This was where this religion picked up heavily, and we mentioned it briefly before, but I wanted to put an actual date on it. The people lived here, adapted to all the changes that came with the different kingdoms, Ottoman rule, and everything that followed. But in the 1990s, Hussein al-Houthi, a son of the Houthi family, gained a seat in parliament to advocate for the northern peoples. Because for all the time under British rule, Ottoman rule, and as talks for Yemen to unite occurred, the Zaidi people always felt underrepresented and felt like their goals were always repressed. However, no matter how hard Hussein tried to advocate for his people's needs, he claimed he was not heard in the government. So he left the capital and returned to his mountainous province. Here, he started the Believing Youth, which was a resistance group aimed at rebelling against the central government for northern ideals. In 1997, an al-Qaeda group formed in South Yemen and started to gain more and more members through its position against United States intervention. In 2004, Hussein Houthi was actually killed in a battle with the Yemen army. His death sparked a huge flock of support behind the Houthi family. The resistance against the South Yemeni army, which killed Hussein, could not have been any higher. Zaidi Shia tribes rose up against the government in the north, and resistance in the north saw the formation of jihadist groups and the consolidation of power behind the Houthi family. The southern movement began in 2007. It was a separatist group that recruited soldiers to make a plan for a South Yemen revolution. And then in 2011, the Arab Spring started to rise up. So this is the term given to the period when the Arab world had had enough. Nation after nation started to rise up against the brutal leaders 
in monarchical systems that had abused them for so long. And no longer did these peoples want to be controlled by a monarchy that didn't love them and only loved the power that came from their religion. In Yemen, the North and South both desired the end of Ali Abdullah Saleh's reign as president. The people protested because the North was shattered by war, the South was in chaos, and poverty gripped the whole nation. Saleh was ousted by the nationwide protest, and Vice President Abdraba Mansur Hadi took power. Hadi hoped to use a democratic structure and strong diplomacy to find a solution to the North-South crisis that had kept this nation divided for so long. The revolutionary spirit gripped those in the Houthi territory of the North. The Houthis felt that the reforms of President Hadi still underrepresented them in government. In 2014, the Houthis found widespread support, and in September of that year, they used it in full force. They launched an invasion of Sana'a, the capital of the country, and captured it. Abdul Malik was the voice of the Houthi revolution. He ordered and motivated the people to expand the control of the Houthi. The Houthi force placed the then-president, Abdraba Hadi, under house arrest. Hadi was able to escape through the port city of Aden and then took refuge in Saudi Arabia. The Houthi forces proudly stated that they aimed to take down the government. The rapid expansion of the Houthi sent a feeling of fear into Saudi Arabia. Saudi worried that a Shia, Saudi worried that a Shia revolution would challenge the southern border. The Houthis did not make this any easier, as they threatened to expand across said border. Tensions were escalated even more as Iran was accused of funding the Houthi with weaponry and money. And this is when we see Saudi get heavily involved. In 2015, Saudi accused Iran of supporting the Houthi rebellion. Saudi formed a coalition of Sunni Arab states against the Houthi. Saudi explained that this was a precautionary measure to prevent the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, which is a part of Yemen, from falling into rebel hands. The Strait is the fourth most important seaport in the world because it accepts trade through the Suez Canal, which is one of the most important places for oil to go through. Saudi led a campaign in Yemen to uphold the Hadi presidency. This was backed by the U.S. and the U.N. The U.S. gave logistics to the Saudi, and the U.N. prevented arms trade to Houthi forces. And the United States claims that they did not want to be involved in conflict, but they felt that investing in Saudi interests was the best way to maintain a watchful eye over the region. Or at least that's what the politicians claim from the U.S. U.S. involvement in the civil war has led to more involvement from Iran and opposing powers. On March 15, 2015, Saudi Arabia led bombing campaigns against the Houthi. Saudi-led bombings were aimed at Houthi camps and cities, but ended up killing many innocent people or destroying their homes. Hayden Hospital was bombed in October of 2015, and the Saudi forces faced widespread backlash nationwide, including from the United States. Due to the bombings, the U.S. attempted to push the Saudi forces to pursue peace, but this was unsuccessful. And while this was going on, the South saw a widespread expansion of the Al-Qaeda forces because of the strong focus in the North. In 2016, the humanitarian crisis began. The coalition, which includes the United States and the UN alongside all those other Arab nations, placed sanctions on air and sea shipments to the Houthi-controlled sea and airports of Yemen. The ports are used for the aid shipments. These ports are only supposed to be used for aid shipments, but the small amount of goods that come through these few ports that are unprotected, that are unsanctioned, has caused widespread starvation, dehydration, and malnutrition across Yemen. The war itself has caused misplacement of millions of North Yemeni due to many homes being destroyed in carpet bombings. By 2016, cholera was rampant because of the horrible living standard, poor water supply, and poor sanitation. Over 1 million cases of cholera were reported, which make it the worst outbreak of this disease in human history. By 2017, the UN estimated that around 7 million people in Yemen were on the brink of starvation. And despite hearing all these statistics, Saudi, the U.S., the U.N. all continue their operations, continue the blockade. And they tried to propagate that this was all due to the Houthi and that because of the fact that the Houthi are resisting, committing terrorist acts, 
threatening Saudi, threatening the U.S., that the blockade needs to continue. But the blockade could stop tomorrow if the U.S. told the Saudi that it needed to end, and it would be so. But all powers involved refuse to do so, despite making claims that 7 million people are about to die. Following this, former President Ali Abdullah Saleh had sided with the Houthi in hope to regain power. He was with them since the start of the conflict, but in 2017, he actually left Houthi forces in hope to negotiate with the Saudis diplomatically. For this dissension, he was marked a traitor, and within days, was executed by Houthi forces. In 2018, the Southern Movement Group in Aden created the Transitional Council, who believed that the President Hadi was not doing enough. The UAE also sided with the Saudi originally, but the two powers have bumped heads because the Emirates actually support the Southern Transitional Council in South Yemen. Saudi has advised against this, which has caused a rift between the powers. The Transitional Council took Adez, the presidential seat in the city, and formed small provinces across South Yemen. The UAE continued to support the council as it expanded and in turn the Emirates pulled from the coalition and has now made an enemy out of Saudi Arabia. The UAE also launched a military campaign against the island of Socatra to prevent Al-Qaeda influence from spreading there. Al-Qaeda continued to gain more and more influence in parts of Yemen, and the United States launched hundreds of drone attacks against the terrorist group. ISIS also formed in the area and cut out their own state within Yemen. Saudi forces increased bombardment campaigns in the Houthi region, and other forces started to weaken Houthi control of seaports. In 2019, the SDC pushed the presidential force out of Aden. Out of Aden. This created war inside the greater civil war. And then, finally, after Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia had journalist Jamal Khashoggi assassinated, a huge resistance in Yemen and the U.S. rose to challenge Saudi involvement in the war and to push the U.S. out of a close relationship with Saudi. In 2022, things really started to shift. A ceasefire was negotiated through the United Nations in April of this year, and then by the end of 2022, the ceasefire was still adhered to so that sea and airstrikes could be prevented. Despite the reduction in fighting during this year, millions of Yemenis remain displaced within the country and civilians more broadly continue to suffer from the food shortages and basic need shortages that come from the continued blockade. On top of this, there were still isolated Houthi attacks on different oil rigging spots, and safety is still a major issue. But a political development was that President Hadi, who was the person that Saudi, the coalition, the United States, all of these powers were supporting, actually stepped down from the government to allow an eight-person coalition to run the government in its place in hopes to push peace forward. But as I record this in 2024 now, there has not been much change. The conflict still goes on, and there is a lot of struggle that still needs to be acknowledged. There is up and downs that happen all the time. People are still killed. War is still going on, and people are, by the millions, facing starvation, homelessness, and hope to escape the country. So with that, that gets us to the absolute present, where despite the struggles of the nation, Yemen is still widely known in the Middle East as Arabia Felix, which means happy Yemen or cheerful Yemen. It is called this for its cheerful and happy people that desire peace, enjoy love, and are full of ideas. This side of Yemen is not shown in the media and is not about to flourish in today's setting. Yemen faces the largest humanitarian crisis in the world as I record this episode, and the only way that this conflict comes to an end is with a lot of effort from the United States and a lot of adherence by every other power. But despite any kind of things we could say, there is still truth. Yemen is facing the single worst crisis in the modern world. Two-thirds of the nation is locked in starvation, and one-third is on the brink of facing famine. Negotiations with the Houthi have been truly unsuccessful, and the war has not stopped. 
the Houthi have great hope that they can defeat the coalition as they continue to march on more and more parts of the country. While millions of Yemeni starve and thousands die, the United States and other large powers, such as Britain and France, are selling weapons to forces in Yemen in hopes to make profit from the conflict, and they are making lots of money from how many people are dying here. The state of Yemen is horrendous, and there isn't a clear end in sight. Awareness for the conflict is important, but the most important thing we can do is elect leaders who will actually try and end this conflict. And we may feel isolated as United States citizens, but the truth is, Saudi listens to us. Most countries in the world do. If we elect a president that ends up saying, Saudi, we're ending this war, the next day, Saudi's going to stop sending airstrikes. And that's the thing we all need to remember, that even if something is 5,000 miles away, there are absolutely ways you can affect it as an American, as a Canadian, as a European, as anyone, because we all have a voice in our democracies and we should use them. And that gets us to the end, where with every country we do, I always have to do a takeaway or a mindset from the history we learned. And with Yemen, it's going to be grim but true. It's don't give up and don't shy away from what you have to. Yemen is literally in the worst crisis on earth right now. Millions have been starved, millions are starving, millions are facing famine, millions have left the country, and hundreds of thousands have been killed in this conflict. In a war that has no end and doesn't seem to have a reason to be continuing to go on, except for tensions of people who aren't actually representing the country. So I say, with those people, the truth is this. We need to be very aware and not shy away from what we need to do, which is acknowledge the horrors that are happening in Yemen and try and solve them. And on top of that, we need to continue to not give up, and the people living there need to continue to not give up, fighting, pushing forward, all the things that they're trying to do to get through. And even though it is hard to make the comparison, you need to do that for yourself. There's something in your life that you're holding back on, that you've given up on, or that you're not acknowledging, the way we're acknowledging this brutal history. And I say, be just like the people of Yemen. Be like the Yemeni who are continuing to push through, refusing to give up, and do your part in all of this by actually acknowledging what's going on. And you could do that for yourself. As I was saying, there's something you have that you aren't facing. There's a struggle you aren't acknowledging. There's a struggle you aren't going through. There's something you need to push yourself into to come out on top. And with the Yemeni, it's literally a war that challenges hundreds of thousands of them to live every day. Millions at this point. For you, that can be a relationship, chasing your dreams, chasing anything. But whatever it is that you are shying away from, face it straight up so that you can become who you're supposed to become and you can push forward. Remember, don't give up. And with all that being said, that's all for me. This was a very hard episode to do. This one is not lighthearted in the ending. There isn't a well-developed country to talk about. There isn't safety for children or women or anyone in this country. There isn't great things to acknowledge, but... This country has beautiful people with a beautiful history and beautiful culture, but right now it is in a bad place, and it's a place we can all help. So I just want to remind you one more time to stay educated on the subject. Make sure when you're looking at your politicians, see how they're going to handle this one and other ones internationally, because a lot of us are very privileged to be in places that are free of internal wars, free of conflict actually affecting our borders, and you know we should use that privilege and safety and all that for something good which is greater peace in the world we all live in. So with all that being said, I'm going to sign off. And just wanted to say thank you all so much for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History. And that was Yemen. Thank you all so much. You have a good day.